Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. We are uh, we're starting a series. We were in Ruth last week, looking at Epiphany, this idea of what does it mean to be my neighbor's keeper. Um, and for the next three weeks, we're going to move in to uh, uh, to really hone in on this idea of my neighbor's keeper. I'll be speaking this week. Eric Knox will speak next week, and then Michelle Lang will speak on the third week on the twenty. 20- Eighth, And so, yeah, it's going to be a great lineup, and then we're all rotating through. But one of the questions that I think gets asked is, why do we, why do, we do this during Epiphany? And, and there may be thoughts that, and, and uh, perspectives of people who think we're somehow forced into talking about race or justice or inequality. But the reality is, at the center of the gospel is one new humanity in Christ. That's what Christ died and resurrected to create. And so when we talk about the difficult things in relationship to one another, and we sense that resistance, like some of you hear about tonight, Ben Thomas, who did announcements, meeting new people that he's never met before is heaven for Ben. He'll be bummed if he gets to heaven and he knows everybody. Like, he, he wants to meet, but for others, it's like, that sounds horrible. Um, but this event is put together so we can build relationships, even just to begin to know each other, to see part of God's family that, that aren't like us and have different stories. Because that pathway, when you feel resistance, whether it's relational or spiritual, that is always an invitation from God that that path of resistance is also a path of transformation. That God wants to invite us into things that challenge our perspective, our understanding, our ignorance, so that he can transform us more into the image of his son. When you think about uh, humanity, right, across the world and throughout history, when they discovered and solved the human genome and looked at all of the DNA, they realized that we share as humans 99.5 to 99.9% of our genes, right? That's similarity. And yet with this point five or point one percent we were able as humans to create huge chasms and classes and systems of difference and and it's those differences that strike right at the heart of god's vision uh for the for a beloved community of what it means for humanity to flourish under shalom, which is peace with God, peace with each other, peace with creation. And today we're going to look at what does it mean to be my neighbor's keeper? How do I do that in a culture like ours? And so turn with me to Genesis 4. We'll go right back to the beginning and look at verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 4. Now Adam made love to his wife Eve, 
And I just paused to make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from among the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, in his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to him, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at the door. If you do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord God said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? We are only in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. So creation was good and very good for two chapters and then sin comes into the world in Genesis 3 and this is our first very, very dysfunctional family. Our sin destroys God's vision of loving peace in human relationships. We don't necessarily know why, I mean, there's some speculation of why God rejected the fruit offering and wanted the fat offering. Um, maybe he's not vegan like we supposed. We don't know. We don't know what it is. But we do understand that Cain understood. And yet, what Cain's perspective, what he, when, when he decides that what needs to happen here is he needs to destroy his brother. And the question, am I my brother's keeper? It assumes not just that sin has destroyed his relationship with Abel, but that he is autonomous. He is separated from Abel's story, from being responsible for Abel's well-being. He gets to distance himself and ask God the question, it's not my, like basically it's not my job to take care of Abel. Sin is always self-love. Self-love over and against the love of God and the love of others. Self-love that leads us to destructive behavior and self-love that leads us to destroy relationships. Autonomy tells us that my story is the only story that matters. My perspective, my understanding is the only one that matters. And if other people's story threaten my story, then that has to be dealt with. Murder is an extreme example. There are other far more subtle examples. And so what happens here from Genesis 4 on is that the seeds of Cain basically feed into systems and structures and politics and kingdoms throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of history where the dominant story 
basically shapes the ends. So whoever has the dominant story, they get to shape the ends and what the real outcome is or what the true quote unquote story is. And this is true today in the pages of the newspaper and it's true all the way back to the very beginning. This this October, I had the uh, privilege to go to Morocco to be part of a gathering that the King of Morocco put together. I don't know him. It'd be a great time to fake it, but I didn't. Um, so, so it was about 50 of us, and there were rabbis and imams and pastors. So extremely diverse group of people. And we all um, sort of walked into this room together not really understanding or knowing each other. We believe deeply in our own faith story. And all three are faiths that come from the person of Abraham. And, and so we shared one thing in common, which was that all three of our faiths teach us to love our neighbor and our enemy. I had never been to an Arab country before, and so um, as soon as we get there, from the dress to uh, the architecture to the language, it all felt extremely foreign to me, and I have a dominant story about Arab culture, which has been sort of delivered through movies I watch and newspaper articles, and, and so... I have this immediate reaction that I'm not even cognizant of that like this doesn't feel safe. Even though it completely was, it still feels that way. Like I'm, I felt like I'm really courageous for Jesus here. I'm risking life and limb in the, you know, Arab, it's like, really dude, you're in Morocco <laughs> under the king's protection. It doesn't really get a lot safer. Um, but, you know, you got to pump yourself up a little bit. And what I learned, and in, 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 in there's this moment, so I, I went all the way to Morocco to meet Rabbi Joseph, Rachel Joseph, and Wajdi, who is a Muslim that runs a foundation here in town. He's been here for 30 years. They're both from Portland. I've never met him. We meet in Morocco to have a conversation <laughs> about faith, which is so funny. But we built this great friendship over the next four or five days. We you know, had a Hanukkah dinner at Rachel's house, and, and hopefully you'll get to meet them. But what, the one thing that we, we had in common was this idea that we are called to love each other. Now, within that, at least for the Muslims and the Christians, we're like, we still believe that you're going to hell, but we love you. The Jewish people are like, eh, you know, doesn't really matter. Uh, they, they're not a proselytizing religion. Because um, I was like, so how do you like grow your synagogue? She goes, well, there's not many Jews in Portland. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's all so foreign and fascinating. And so we're sitting there like learning each other's stories and learning each other's traditions. And there's some moments where it gets super real. Like you look over and there's like 15 imams and they got their big hats and their cool dress kind of shirts on and that's the one thing they all had cool clothes except for the pastors we had nothing like no little yarmulke nothing we just look like we're winging it we're like well we sometimes pray before dinner you know um 
it's just, it was sort of sad. Um, but as we were walking, um, Wajdi goes up. There's this woman. She has her head covered. She's pushing a stroller, an older woman, probably with her granddaughter. And he walks up and he kisses her on the head, kisses the baby on the head. And he begins to talk to her in Arabic. I don't know what they're saying, but I'm assuming like he knows this person. And so we, we begin to walk on. I was like, who is that? And he's like, I don't know. I was just greeting her. And I'm thinking to myself, like, are you kidding me? Like, if I pull that off in Portland, that's not going to go well. If I just like, hello, I'm coming in, <laughs> coming in for the real thing here. Um, you're going to read about that all over social media, right? I was just greeting this person. But you saw the beauty and the hospitality and the friendliness of this culture. That was, that was incredibly beautiful. And you could see it all over the place. And yet... I'm reading it through the lens of this dominant story that I continue to be told. And then I come home, and whatever you're watching on TV, every Arab actor is playing a terrorist. That's a story. It's not the story, but it's a story. Now, I'm not saying there aren't radical Islamic terrorists, and there's radical Hindu terrorists and Christian terrorists. There's radical terrorists. But that dominant story ends up being the story that we think is reality, when all the while it's not. The Marrakesh Declaration that they signed there a year ago before this meeting was a declaration to allow for religious plurality in Muslim countries. While we were there, this was televised. A lot of the conversation was televised all over the Arab world. And yet it was, there was no one there from, from Western media outlets. So it's fascinating when you hear there are other stories than what you're privy to. This also goes when you think of um, just the story like Muslims are, Right? When I was growing up and we talked about migrant workers, but the language that was used was illegal aliens. Now think about that. First of all, aliens is not a word that conjures up friendliness. It conjures up ET or close encounters or you know predator or something like that. But not only do we have that kind of alien, we have an illegal one. It's, it, it's a story that shapes our imagination which is very different than undocumented peoples, right? That's a different story. And even our own president who would describe countries that people are immigrating from as, you know, S-H, I don't know if there's kids here, IT holes, well, hopefully the kids could spell, I just totally <laughs> jacked that up. <laughs> You know, and, and this gets repeated over and then he denies it. But the, but the good news is, is that my savior came from one of those blank hole countries called Nazareth. And that's exactly what they said about his country. Can anything good come from that blank Nazareth? And that's Jesus actually came from there. And so these stories begin to, to sort of distort our perspective and our understanding and what we see that occurs in genesis is this autonomous sin begins to fracture relationship where i can stand back now and say am i my neighbor's keeper 
What responsibility do I have about their problems, their burdens, their this, their that? They created these. Rather than understanding that that very attitude is fracturing human relationship. And it is pervasive, not only in the culture, but it is in in the church too. Historically, we have not done this well. And so the question then becomes, what do we do when we see that kind of fracturing, that kind of autonomy, that kind of sort of from, from passive to violent autonomy? So we come to Christ. Look at John 17 with me. Because in Christ, we find this great reversal as Jesus creates this one new humanity through union with him by the Spirit. And I want you to listen to John 17, verse 20 and following. He says, he's praying at the end of this upper room talk that he gave before he would get arrested and crucified. And as he prays, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the 12 disciples. He says, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The great reversal from Cain's question, am I my neighbor's neighbor's keeper, comes to us in Christ when he teaches us that we are actually supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. That this new humanity that is united to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, is also united to one another in all of its diversity, in all of its complexity, in all of its many stories. We are all grafted into this one redemptive story that doesn't sort of deny or diminish your own personal story, but it amplifies and unites it where all those stories create a much more beautiful and full story. The genius of Jesus in his life, when he teaches that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, love God with everything we got and love our neighbor as ourself, is that in bringing it down to the lowest common denominator of you and your neighbor, he subverts essentially all systems, all structures, all the political drama and garbage and puts it into a person and a person. This isn't a population of the disabled. This is Ben, and who happens to have cerebral palsy. It's Ben. This is my neighbor who happens to be from Mexico, who happens to be undocumented. But she has a name. The great reversal in loving our neighbor as ourself not only sort of subverts all of the destructive, am I really my brother's keeper? But it also transforms our own heart as well. When you think of our spiritual lives, I want you to see this 
I guess, diagram, which shows kind of the relationship that we have to the Father, Son, and Spirit, and to the other. And so Jesus says, you're going to love the God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That Jesus in John 17 says that we would be united to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And yet, there is also this trajectory of being in relationship with the other. And the way that we grow is not simply by me and Jesus, but it's actually by me and Jesus and the other. And the closer I get to the Father and his love, the more love that I will have for my neighbor. And that path that feels very resistant to us, like, ah, really? We're going to go to a different church and talk to people? I don't even know all the people at my church. Can I? Uh, I'll just work on that right now. That, that, that resistance is actually an invitation because the more diverse your friendships, your relationships, the more stories that you listen to that shape you, then actually the bigger picture that you get of God. Because God is a plurality in himself. God is other within himself. The Father is other than the Son. The Son is other than the Father, and yet without the Son, the Father's not a Father, and without the Father, the Son's not the Son. So there is this interdependency, distinct and equal, united, and the Spirit is communicating his love back and forth and God says yeah and I want all of you with all of your stories to get in on this relationship that has existed for all eternity and part of the way you're going to get in on it is when you walk across the street and love your neighbor who will image me back to you And so when you feel that sense of resistance, that is the Holy Spirit going, yeah, it's going to be good, right? Even though you're like, eh, I don't want to, right? It's, It's the pathway to growth. As we are united to Christ and the Father by the Spirit, we are also united to each other. And it's stepping out of our comfort zone and allowing other stories and perspectives to shape us. Now look at verse 22. It says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There is a, a focus that goes beyond even us, even, even the church. And it's that Jesus so loves the world that he wants his existence to be validated. And he knows that one of the most powerful ways that that would be validated is if you could bring a bunch of diverse people, people who maybe have been at war with each other, maybe people who have oppressed each other, maybe people who are willing to to forgive great evil, and that they would love each other because of Christ. And the reason that that would be so convincing to the world is because that is not of the world. 
That is not the way the world works. That's heaven breaking in to now. And there are places where that has been rich and fruitful, and there have been places where we have given in to our resistance historically as God's people and not allowed the beauty of the gospel, what Martin Luther King called the beloved community, which is this. This is the picture of that. But we haven't allowed it because we haven't walked across the street. Turn with me to Romans 12. If we're going to become this diverse community of love, the question goes, well, how? How do we do that? And in Romans 12, uh, Paul gives us really five things that we can do. And, and this is where the sermon kind of gets uh, real, I guess. Because as long as we keep it philosophical and we can walk away and discuss like, well, did you like that or no, it wasn't. But now it's like, wow, he's actually like God, not Rick. The scriptures are giving us something to do. It gets kind of like personal and that's okay. I feel that too. You feel that. We're just going to name it because there is something that we have to put in the game, right? Christ put everything in the game. And now he's asking us to put our lives in the game. How do we move into this work of Christ that builds unity? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Christ is rescuing us from our own cultural captivity. And we have all been conformed to the patterns of this world. The pattern of this world is, am I my neighbor's keeper? Why am I responsible for you or them? And cultural captivity is so strong right now in our communities, in our culture. When you think of identity politics, most of you in here identify with some group or some cause way before you identify with Christ. What Paul's saying is that we, that needs to change. That before I am this or for this, I am in Christ and I belong to these people. When we look at historic racism versus the sacred ethnicity that God has created humanity in, we realize that we have made an idol out of our own single story, right? My story becomes the story which becomes an idol. What God is wanting to do, he's saying, I want you to be transformed from that. I don't want you to be shaped by the cultural story. I don't want you to be captive to those kinds of dogmas. I want Christ to be the one 
that shapes your mind, that shapes your thoughts, that shapes your attitude and your relationships, that shapes your understanding. And so he uses this word, be transformed. That is the very first thing that we're called to do is be transformed. The word is metamorphe. It's where we get our word metamorphous. It's the picture of a caterpillar being in a cocoon and becoming a butterfly. We're talking about deep, radical transformation. And that we would give ourselves to that and allow our mind to be renewed. That might feel scary and you might feel resistance but we all need to be transformed from our cultural captivity. And this happens in and by the beloved community. The gift that we are is that Christ gave us to each other so that through one another's story and life and burdens and joys, we would begin to be transformed. In other words, you can't do it by yourself. You come to the cross alone, as soon as you get up, you're in a family. A dysfunctional family, yes. A family that you didn't necessarily, yep. All those people are in it. You didn't get to make the family. It's Christ's family. And it's the family that God's gonna use to transform us. And it's still messy and broken and sinful but it's Christ, and he's at the center of it. We need to be transformed. The second thing that he says in verse three, he says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has given each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. And so the second thing that he calls us to do is to humbly respect the sacredness of the other that we are united to. Humbly respect the sacredness of the other that you're united to. All of our stories have sacredness to them. And yet all of those stories are being woven and grafted into the redemptive story of Christ. And so humbly come to the other with great respect because they too are members of Christ's body. They too have a story. Your story is not the story. And so there's a humility that's required and we're called into to respect the sacredness of the other and their story. Look at verse 9 through 13. He says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. 
If I was to sum all of that up, I would say love sincerely, right? Love Christ sincerely, but love one another sincerely, which means honor them, love them, hate what is evil if it's happened to them. He uses the language practice hospitality. One of our core practices at Imago is hospitality, and tonight we've been invited into another church's hospitality. They were to welcome us and give us their hospitality. Now, I don't know about you, but I always feel more comfortable if I'm giving hospitality rather than receiving. It's my house, my stuff, right? I'm not going to get caught off guard. Uh, I know whatever we're going to eat, I'm going to like, you know, it's like, it's my, it's home advantage is what we call it. But we're being invited to experience the hospitality of another. And you practice hospitality not just by receiving it, not by giving it, but by receiving it as well. And so love sincerely. The reason that we've created these experiences like tonight and on the 28th we'll have uh, the art of tough talks in here where we talk about race and diversity. It's so that we can engage beyond the information dump of Sundays and actually step, begin to step into these conversations. And so love sincerely. Look with me at verse 14 through 16. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. And if I sum that up, I'd say do everything you personally can to contribute to a flourishing peace in God's people. Do everything you personally can to contribute to a flourishing peace. I know that one of the temptations is to assume that, that, that who, whatever group is doing whatever, they don't really need you or that you won't be missed. And so in some ways, we begin to like think so small of ourselves that we're like, my absence will actually not be a big deal. But that is sort of a passive way of not contributing. Because God did give you a story, and that story is sacred, no matter what you think about it or how it's been responded to. And the person that God has made you to be is part of the equation. It's part of the mosaic. It's part of the picture. And so you are invited in terms of an action. Do whatever you can to contribute to a flourishing peace in God's people. And then verse 21, he sums it up simply by saying, don't overcome evil. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? That there is a place in which we need to own pain that we've created. And yet, what we're being called into is, is to a place where, uh, like in verse 18, he says, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And so we are called to be peacemakers who aren't being overcome by evil, but we're overcoming evil with good. And so five things that this united humanity with the Father, Son, and Spirit that has been made one in Christ are called to do. Be transformed. Humbly respect the sacredness of the other, right? Love sincerely. Do whatever you can to contribute to a flourishing peace and overcome evil with good. And tonight is a very tiny step of answering sort of MLK's prayer that we would be not the most segregated time of the week. We are called to something greater, you and I. And yet, it's very easy, particularly in a consumer culture, to, to not move in to what is great that God has for us. Because great might be hard. So we'll be happy with good enough, because good enough is easy. The transformation that God wants to do, though, is not just in you, it's in someone else. And when you hold back in a real way, you prevent their growth as well. We belong to one another. We have been bought with a price. And as we come to that table, we realize that the price that Christ paid for this endeavor, this revolution, this great reversal, was that he paid it with his own life, coming from the nowhere place of Nazareth, dying on the cross, giving, taking on the rejection, the de- being despised, being crucified, being cast out and told and shamed. It says that he scorned the shame, enduring the cross with joy to create this new humanity that would be united in the love of the Father, that would be in Christ by the Spirit, and that we would let that love flow over into one another. Now, I know this is, sounds big and hard and massive, but the bottom line is that all God is asking you for is today. Will you follow him into his love for your neighbor? Will you walk across the street? Will you drive across town? Will you have ears to hear and eyes to see? Will you be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry? That Christ might dwell in our midst and change us. We need to heal. Portland needs to heal. America needs to heal. This city, these, our communities need to heal. And we can't heal alone. And we're not going to legislate healing. As, as, as much as we need new systems that work, but we're going to heal face-to-face, soul-to-soul, person-to-person. And we have the opportunity to be those wounded healers that testify to the world that heaven can break in to the hardest places through the love of Christ. 
It's not easy, but it is the story that we're called into. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus today and um, recognize that we are all sort of captive to different stories and narratives and things in culture that uh, we want to identify with even more than you. And so God, as your spirit convicts and moves, I pray that we would be attentive to the own, our own resistance in our heart to, to walking across the street, to reaching out a hand, to hearing a, another story. And that, God, you would begin to transform us, renew our minds, help us to see what you see and love what you love and extend ourselves as that living sacrifice. And God, I pray that, that we would bear witness that, that you are enough, and that you would heal us, God, and you would make healers of us, and that we would reciprocate as brothers and sisters, deeply loved by a good father, saved by a mighty king, and filled with a holy, loving spirit. May we be faithful to your vision. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com Thanks a lot for listening.